Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a departure from our usual long format interviews with artists, historians, and curators to talk about the Trump administration's attempt to eliminate America's federal arts and humanities funding infrastructure. The National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities make up eight one-thousandths of one percent of the federal budget. Still, in the name of austerity, the Trump White House has targeted them and the Institute of Museum and Library Services and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for elimination in its first budget. The two national endowments received $148 million in appropriations in the federal government's most recent fiscal year, while the IMLS received $230 million and CPB $445 million. Meanwhile, the Trump budget includes a 10% increase in defense spending, $54 billion in all. That's 365 times the NEA or NEH budget. My first guest is Los Angeles Times art critic Christopher Knight. No American art or arts critic has written more about the role of federal arts and humanities funding, and especially the national endowments, over more years than Christopher Knight. He's been the art critic of the LA Times since 1989. He's a three-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and received the Frank Jewett Mather Award for Distinction in Art Criticism from the College Art Association in 1997. He's written about the NEA and arts funding for over a quarter of a century. On the second segment, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Executive Vice President for Programs and Research Marriott Westerman joins me. She'll talk about federal arts and humanities funding from a funder's perspective. Prior to joining Mellon in 2010, Westerman was the Provost and Chief Academic Officer of New York University Abu Dhabi, the Director of NYU's Institute of Fine Arts, the Associate Director of Research at the Clark Art Institute, and an Associate Professor at Rutgers University. As an historian of Netherlandish art, Westerman has written books on Jan Steen, Rembrandt, Vermeer, and more. Finally, if you're new to the show this week, please consider subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Our website, manpodcast.com, has a page of links to places where you can subscribe and receive our program each week. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review wherever you download it. That really does help new people find the program. On to the show. Christopher Knight, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World, Durham's first North American retrospective. This unprecedented exhibition of nearly 200 works by the artist and activist is on view from January 29th through May 7th. See the Hammer Museum's newly renovated galleries filled with Durham sculptures, video work, and installations most never shown in Los Angeles. Also on view this season, the first in-depth museum exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Jean de Buffet, a selection of works by Liz Craft from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, and Hammer Projects featuring work by Simon Denny and Kevin Beasley. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free admission and free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Sarah Oppenheimer, S337473, and Carmen Herrera, Lines of Sight, through April 16th. Oppenheimer's site-responsive, perception-altering installation was created with support from a Wexner Center Artist Residency Award. Originally curated by Dana Miller for the Whitney Museum of American Art, Lines of Sight is the first museum survey of Herrera's elegant geometric work in nearly two decades, and this is the show's only stop outside of New York City. For more information, go to wexarts.org. 
The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents Yoyoi Kusama Infinity Mirrors, the first exhibition to explore the evolution of the legendary artist's iconic installations. Featuring an unprecedented six of her dazzling environments, Infinity Mirrors is the most significant North American tour of her work in nearly two decades, opening February 23rd and on view at the Hirshhorn through May 14th. Visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Ron Muick, an exhibition of major works by the contemporary sculptor. These hauntingly realistic figures showcase the artist's playful use of scale and explore the human condition, the nature of physical existence, and the ambiguity of the unknown. Now on view exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, visit mfah.org muick for more. And we're back. Christopher Knight, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks very much. To the extent that there's something interesting about the routine right-wing Republican attacks on American culture, it's seeing progressives contextualize their responses in new and interesting ways. In your piece last week, you made two arguments. The second one was that cultural spending is infrastructural spending, and we'll get to that in a moment. But you also argued that the national endowments deserve significant credit for providing a path to professional financial success for artists and that the endowments have helped birth wealth. And maybe that would be clear if I let you tell that story. One of the things that struck me about the conversation around the NEA, such as it is today, and around the founding of the NEA in 1965 is the vast difference in the art world today and the art world then. In 1965, the idea of an enormous, sometimes crushing, always attention-grabbing art market simply didn't exist. It was in its infancy. It was just sort of beginning and getting off the ground, whereas Whereas today it's enormous, and there are artists who, who American artists working today, whose financial success, whose economic success, was virtually unthinkable in 1965. So, if there is an element of NEA involvement in the development is the creation and development of a larger national infrastructure in which new art is threaded and evolves, it must have had some impact on the creation of this economic phenomenon. So I, I just sort of off the top of my head looked at three large foundations established by artists, Warhol, Rauschenberg, Twombly, Mike Kelly, and checked their most recent tax statements and found that their net worth was two and a quarter billion dollars. That would have been impossible, unheard of, unthinkable in 1965. So for a market-driven political ideology, which is what the GOP embraces today, for them to completely ignore this aspect of what the NEA has done struck me as disingenuous and frankly ignorant. When I was writing the piece, I somewhat hesitated to bring it up because it's so easy to confuse financial value with 
importance and significance in works of art. And, and the two, as we know, are not commensurate. But I also think it's an important reality to acknowledge if we are indeed going to have a substantive discuss, discussion about uh, government support for the arts. Especially when conservatives are happy to have government programs that lead to wealth creation in sectors such as energy or technology. Why not in the arts? I think the answer to that question is fairly complicated and fairly interesting. One primary difference between the arts and the fields that you mentioned is that any quote-unquote job category is gendered in one way or another. And when one talks about you know energy and industry, one's talking in masculine terms. When one's talking about the arts, one's talking about a feminine gender. And as we know, uh, women's work in many fields is regarded as secondary or less important. So the attention automatically goes to, to those gendered, uh, those masculine gendered fields. You know, for, for good or ill, right or wrong, the, the, the arts world is, ha- has this kind of second class uh, status where it's thought that lip service is enough in the same way that one opens a door for a woman to pass through while not paying that woman the, the same salary that a man might get. The next part of your argument in, in your essay last week was that cultural spending is infrastructure spending. How so? Well, we have a we have a national highway system through which goods and services pass. We also have a, uh, a fairly large and complicated infrastructure of art museums, nonprofit spaces, commercial galleries, publications, writers, uh, collectors, and so on. Again, in 1965, when the endowment got off the ground, when the NEA got off the ground, that infrastructure was minuscule. Certain parts of it were larger than other parts, but, but by and large, it was very, very small and mostly concentrated in New York. If you look at the history of, of collecting and the history of museums and galleries and so on, they pop up here and there around the country, but the the concentration of that activity is is pretty pretty limited. But now it, it it's much larger than it was. It's much bigger than it was, and I think the the NEA in many respects has been instrumental in creating that uh, that infrastructure around the country. It's one of the reasons that wealth creation has happened around the visual arts in a way that it hadn't happened before. You you also wrote about the NEA in the context of its programmatic success last week, but you've written this before. So uh, here's the lead from something you wrote about the NEA in 1995, quote, sometimes nothing fails like success. Programmatic, obviously, uh, or at least it's become obvious that conservatives and right-wingers don't care about metrics, metrics of success for certain categories of government programs as we've, as we've been discussing. But do liberals and progressives make the argument and case about programmatic success as well as they should be? Give me an example of what you mean by programmatic success. 
Well, for example, the wealth creation that we're talking about or extending arts infrastructure into uh, Kentucky or, or northeastern Ohio or or in the case of the NEH, building out the digitizing newspapers program so that historians or even school children anywhere in the country can access material from 150 or 175 years of American history? I think the liberal arguments in favor of the NEA are, uh, they border on dysfunctional. They're the same, the, the, the same arguments uh, will be made, are being made and will be made in 2017 that were made 20 years ago, 30 years ago, back when the Reagan administration, um, you know, first began its assault on the National Endowment. And it's, it's not that, it's not that the arguments for why the arts are, quote-unquote, important are not legitimate. They are legitimate. It's that everybody already believes that. I don't think you can find any or, or very many people who aren't willing to give at least lip service to, uh, to the significance, the cultural significance of, of what the NEA produces. It's not as if they need to be convinced they they're already i think i think americans by and large are already aware of that and while it may be necessary to restate those values time and time again as part of the you know ongoing maintenance of of public support for the nea i think it's a a, a big mistake to to ignore the history of of what the nea has accomplished and I also think it's a mistake to ignore the deficiencies in the NEA and how it's operated. Sometimes those deficiencies have been successfully addressed. For instance, there was there there was a, a general feeling that that cultural support went to cities and not rural areas that it went to certain states and not other states. And there was considerable attention directed towards rectifying those imbalances, those inequities. If I have my, my figures right, I believe currently NEA grant making goes to rural areas to the tune of about 24% of the NEA's budget. Well, 17% of Americans live in rural areas. So one could, I suppose, make the argument that funding to rural areas is out of balance because it's too large. Uh, whereas I, I assume the general thought would be that, oh, well, it, you know, most funding is going to cities and, and shouldn't be, when in reality, it's the other way around. So there are, there are past deficiencies that have been successfully addressed. There are questions of how the arts infrastructure operates and needs to be maintained that need to be addressed. When we were talking about an arts infrastructure in the United States, about a, a museum culture, for instance, or a nonprofit culture, one of the things that makes what the NEA does significant is that it needs to address maintenance. Maintenance is the last thing people want to give money to, but maintenance is critical. If you've got if you've got a highway system that's full of potholes, you've got a problem. If you've got a cultural 
infrastructure that's full of potholes, you've got another kind of problem. And those ongoing maintenance issues need attention. You know, I've noticed that in the past, right-wing attacks on the NEA or or PBS or the Corporation for Public Broadcasting have generally come tied to artists whose work conservatives don't like um, or didn't understand or you know didn't even try to understand. This time that isn't the case. We aren't seeing attacks on artists either as a motivating factor or coming in the wake of the White House's attacks on the NEA, NEH, IMLS, and CPB. Is that meaningful or is that that, that isn't happening this time? Well, I'm judging from my email, I'm not so sure it's not happening. <laughs> I mean, the, the the number of times a handful of artists are mentioned in the in the responses that I've gotten to the to the recent piece I wrote, th- that those artists are, are mentioned has has been significant, if not surprising. I think what's interesting about them is that those artists, you know, Maplethorpe, Serrano, and so on. Those are controversies from 30, 35 years ago. The interim has brought nothing. <laughs> it's brought no uh, no names into the foreground that that can be that can be dredged up, and I think that mostly suggests the effectiveness of right wing propaganda over the course of a quarter of a century, uh, in terms of embedding in people's minds that uh, you know artists are crazy libertines who are not to be trusted and therefore must be crushed or left out of our considerations. I think it also has something to do with the change in NEA funding patterns where grants to artists are no longer given. They're grants to institutional programs, and those institutional programs act as filters. Although even saying that can create a, a certain confusion when when something like like Maplethorpe's situation was itself not about a grant to an artist, it was about a grant to an institution that wanted to consider the work of of an artist. One of the NEA successes that really hasn't been much discussed in the last week or so has been the way in which the NEA, especially, but also the other relevant agencies, have changed the national discourse around culture and culture-related opportunity to include people of color, projects and institutions that serve gay, lesbian, and trans people, and communities of color. You yourself have written about how important the NEA was in enabling that change, not not last week, but in previous pieces. Given that Trumpism rose to influence and then power um, along a wave of white nationalism and explicit anti-Semitism, have you seen any evidence or suggestion, overt suggestion, that part of the reason for a Trumpist attack on America's cultural infrastructure is or might be related to the identity, the white identity politics of, of the Trumpist crowd? I think that's a given. The white nationalist core of Trumpism would automatically recoil at the kinds of diversity that is baked into a national endowment for the arts. It's not the nationalist endowment for the arts, it's the national endowment for the arts, and it encompasses people across the spectrum. The conservative attacks on the NEA in the in the 1980s were very specifically targeted towards 
quote-unquote difference towards the the expression of difference and i simply you know at, at this point would would assume that the continuity of those attacks um on the nea would would be uh, manifesting the same narrow world view if if one hears discussions of how uh, cultural support should be privatized. Well, wealth is concentrated in certain areas in American life, and those those areas are not diverse. So private support for culture is important, but private support for culture is also inevitably narrow and limited. One of the one of the important developments with the creation of artist run foundations is that artists understand that artists understand the 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 narrowness of official culture in America and anywhere and they're the ones who tend to go out on a limb and support the kinds of things that once got the NEA into trouble and artist run foundations have cover because they're private so the the imbalance of of the past is shifting somewhat because of that but th there's just no doubt in my mind that people who would argue that the federal government has no business supporting cultural activity know full well that what they're suggesting is that the status quo should remain and that changing that status quo is not the business of, of government either. At the top of the show, I noted that you've been writing about this issue for over a quarter century now. Why do progressives and non-progressive art advocates, for that matter, keep finding themselves at, at this point, at the point of having to defend American governmental support of the arts and humanities? Is it entirely about right-wing culture warring, or have advocates never really effectively closed the deal in terms of explaining to a broad American public why there is a federal interest in perpetuating a nation's history and culture? Surveys that I'm aware of typically show that the American public understands on a gut level that it's important. And the most recent surveys that I've seen show that by significant margins, the public supports not shutting down the NEA, but giving it additional funding, making it larger than it currently is. So I think there's been a general level of success in that regard. W one of the things I wrote about in my recent piece is that I see this on a, a, a macro level, the, the, what the what the war is about is not a a specific uh, work of art or a specific artist or a specific kind of art. It's a much larger philosophical battle that's being waged over government principles that reach back to the New Deal, to FDR and the New Deal. It is the case that... The WPA, as as we know, was the first, really the first time that the federal government got involved in support for artists of of a wide variety. 
for those were desperate times for everybody, including artists. And it was the creation of the WPA at a time of crisis that began to open the door. And what flourished from that ultimately came to seem to be a uh, not, not such a bad idea at all. And you can, you can trace it from, you know, FDR through JFK, through LBJ to NEA. And all of that is what's under assault now in the Steve Bannon tear down the, the halls of, of government ideology that has taken hold of Washington. And the idea is to topple that entire legacy. And the NEA is just one small brick in a very large edifice of that. So it, it, it's a much bigger kettle of fish than, than we're often ready to acknowledge. In real dollar terms, the NEA budget has been falling for decades, about half. In terms of today's dollars, it's about half of what the NEA got in 1994. Even though conservatives have substantially succeeded in studying the NEA and, and the related agencies, think tanks, not even progressive think tanks, have routinely failed to consider new ideas for how the federal government could encourage and sustain American cultural projects. However, where they have failed a few years ago, you put forth an idea that it seems to me merits consideration, especially because it has a lot of potential for, for coalition building among parties who would benefit. Your, your model put forth in a 2013 mini essay in the Brooklyn Rail, we'll have a link on manpodcast.com, your model was the National Science Foundation. How would such a thing work for the arts and what, would, what do you imagine it doing? You know, we... <laughs> Using the National Science Foundation as, as a model for for funding of, of kind of larger research-oriented projects in the visual arts, I think you know holds a lot of potential. But we also have to keep in mind that the same folks who want to tear down the NEA also don't believe in science. They also question climate change. They're also you know deniers of scientific validity and scientific fact. So, you know, so one runs into a, an intellectual brick wall as far as these folks go. There are a whole variety of approaches that an NEA, uh, a lively NEA that wasn't having to deal with, you know, year after year being whittled away and attacked and brutalized and so on. A number of things that, that could be tried that I think, you know, might, might be significant. One of them being, for instance, ha having to do with exhibition funding. I would love to see the, the NEA and even large foundations institute a policy that any funding that went to an exhibition at a museum or a cultural center could only be given to an exhibition that would be open to the public for free, which would which would kind of instantly shift the way in which museums organize their budgeting in terms of delivering their mission to a public. The idea that museums are charging $20, $25 for entry into, uh, into shows is a real shame. And as we know, every person who goes to an exhibition costs an institution, you know, perhaps twice 
that $20 admission fee. So it's not an inexpensive thing to do. It's not a cheap thing to do, but it's a critically important thing to do is not to, not to approach exhibitions as entertainment opportunities, entertainment venues. They're not. If one began to charge the general public to go to a library, there would be pandemonium in America. We shouldn't be charging people to go to art museums either. Art museums are simply, to my way of thinking, the visual equivalent of a library. And the NEA and various foundations could help could help rectify that kind of imbalance through uh, through the kinds of, of funding that that they offered. So th- I, I think there's a whole range of, of possibilities that, that could be considered, including including research options along the lines of the National Science Foundation. But but again, when funding for the NEA is so precarious and has been so precarious for so long, it's awfully hard to try and tinker with, with the machinery for, for fear of, uh, of letting the whole thing break down. And I do think that one of the reasons it's so critical that the NEA not be scrapped at this time is not that the NEA is perfect, because it's not. It's not because the NEA doesn't, quote unquote, waste some of its funding, because I have yet to see a government program that inevitably doesn't waste it. It's that it's that the creation of an endowment was so long in coming, was so hard fought, was so difficult to get up and running in the first place that eliminating it and going back to square one is really, you know, would really be a, a, a devastating um, situation. It's extremely difficult to begin a program. It's much easier to stop a program than it is to begin a program. And if you've got a, if you've got something like uh, like the National Endowment, you can change the internal workings uh, much more easily than you can create those workings from scratch. And that, that's, to my way of thinking, that's why it's so critical that the NEA be, be maintained in, in some way, shape, or form. That's the highest, the highest priority at the moment. Christopher Knight, thanks so much. Uh, my pleasure. The Getty invites you to explore its first online-only exhibition, The Legacy of Ancient Palmyra. War in Syria has irrevocably changed the ancient city of Palmyra, once a bustling center of culture and trade. For centuries, traveling artists and explorers have documented the site in former states of preservation. This online exhibition captures Palmyra as it was photographed for the first time by Louis Veen in 1864 and illustrated in the 18th century by the architect Louis-Francois Cassas. Explore this ancient site at getty.edu slash Palmyra. On view now, SF MoMA presents Matisse Diebenkorn, a story of artistic inspiration. Over the course of four decades, California painter Richard Diebenkorn was deeply influenced by Henri Matisse while forging a style entirely his own. The exhibition reveals how much the two painters share in their use of lush, vibrant, joyful color, attentiveness to structure and composition, choice of subject matter, and the richly layered surfaces of their canvases. See their art side by side for the first time and encounter a surprising new view 
of two of the 20th century's most extraordinary painters. Matisse Diebenkorn is on view through May 29th at SFMOMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago, who is identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. Welcome back. My next guest is Mariette Westerman, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Executive Vice President for Programs and Research. Mariette Westerman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me, Tyler. I want to start with one of the right-wing talking points we've heard in the last week or so, and that's that instead of the federal government, private philanthropy should do what the NEA and the NEH and the IMLS do. The Mellon Foundation is a huge private philanthropic organization. Its asset base is something around $6 billion. It spent in its most recently reported year about $210 million in, in, in grants. So from the point of view who's, of someone who does private philanthropy, what is the benefit in having a federal arts funding agency or two or three? So before we even talk about the benefits, it's important to give a sense of scale of that funding. So if you look at the NEA and the NEH together, they each give about away about $240 million a year, actually a little bit less than that because they also have to run their programs. So that, that makes a, a total of about you know, $440 million they put into the bloodstream of the arts and humanities in America. Mellon, as you say, does a lot for its part, uh, totaling about $280 million last year, as a matter of fact. But when you compare those numbers, you can see that if that $440 million drains away all of a sudden, uh, let alone the IMLS money and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting money in addition to that, you can see that we can't begin to make that up. It's very interesting, too, to realize that the NEH and the NEA together have given more, away more than $10 billion they've distributed since they were founded in 1965, which, again, compares sort of closely to us. We are sort of north of $6 billion in terms of our distributions since 1969. But again, the idea that we could sort of step in uh, as the largest humanities and arts funder in America, dedicated humanities and arts funder in America, in, on the private side uh, is is a fallacy. Is there are there ways in which either of the endowments or CPB or IMLS partners with you in a way that kind of amplifies everybody's reach that might be worth pointing out? That is an excellent point, and in fact, we are extremely fond of partnering with the NEA and the NEH in various ways. And that really is kind of built into the assumptions that the federal government has always had about these endowments, which was that they would leverage and bring to the table funders who might not otherwise be 
uh, bringing monies to the table. And so, for example, we have dedicated collaborations with them. One that I'm very fond of is the Humanities Open Books initiative, where we partner fully 50-50, you like it to, 50-50 with the NEH to make available these really interesting books that would really be online and for free to anyone who will want access to them about cultures, peoples, literary traditions, and so forth from people all over the world. And those kinds of books are really expensive to produce for publishers. And so people who can perfectly well want to read these things would never have access to them unless there was a public entity willing to, you know, put put that, make that a priority. And then we come in and help expand that reach. The best example of all, perhaps, is the NEA-led initiative called ArtPlace. ArtPlace was created right about 2009-2010 in response to an acute economic crisis. Of course, the, the fallout of the Great Recession of 2008, which was in full bore in 2010. And so many of our small communities and larger communities all over the United States in every state were struggling. And the then chairman of the NEA, Rocco Landesman, realized that with the funding that the NEA had, they could only do so much. But what they could, he could do is go around to all these other agencies that have some small amounts of arts funding, but more importantly, go to us private foundations and say, how about we create a large fund together that gets competitively distributed right into all these communities that are struggling and that know because they have lots of activist artists and excellent artists on the ground, that the arts can make their communities sing, bring new jobs, bring new attention to their particular plight and, and find some ways to remediate. After we and about eight other foundations came in to fund this initiative, banks also became interested. So financial institutions, including ones that had never really thought hard about supporting the arts, were very attracted to the economic argument. And I suppose some of them also felt a certain guilt about what had happened in 2008. That initiative has been tremendously successful in terms of what it's distributed around the country uh, over the past, past now almost eight years. Uh, you know, a total of eight, almost 80 million has been distributed. Projects are often quite small, 50,000 maybe, an average maybe of 295,000, I think it is. And it's helped just hundreds of communities in almost every state. And I don't think that we as privates would have come together to do this, and especially not the banks, if the NEA hadn't led. And that's where that independent quality of leadership from a federal agency, thinking nationally, not locally or parochially, about particular art forms or particular places is, is invaluable. The right in America has made public-private partnership uh, a buzzword over the last two decades, and I think what you just described is, is a great example of uh, a public-private partnership. It, it also points to how foundations often have their own priorities. They're govern, governed by their own missions in terms of what they choose to fund, and the endowments and IMLS and CPV have their own priorities, and, and, and we could loosely call those national priorities. And it seems to me one of the useful things of having a private-public partnership relationship is that the public institutions, the ones with national funding goals, 
can bring private philanthropy and private donors to national goals in a way that really maybe no other entity can. Am I reading that right? I think that's very well put. There is a way in which private donors, whether they're foundations or individuals, will always have certain particular interests, whether they be local or dedicated to particular institutional forms or particular art forms. And so having an independent arbiter of the state of the arts or humanities in the country is extremely important. And it is certainly also possible for these agencies to find alignment with particular segments of the private funding sector. But as you've just pointed out, if you leave it all to the private organizations, as broad and as national and even international as the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation is, for example, we can only do so much and we're certainly not going to be as mindful as a national agency would be that it serves every one of the 50 states and all the territories. When I worked in the nonprofit sector, I remember hearing from the leaders of, of the nonprofits at which I worked how important funding diversity was, how it was important for a single organization to have funding sources that included things like membership, foundation support, private individual support, and so on. We're talking here about an entire sector, the, the arts sector. Are there any particular benefits to funding diversity to the sector that both we and policymakers should have in mind right now? I believe that public-private partnership, as you've put it, is critical to a healthy arts ecosystem. You certainly don't want everything to come from the state, very honestly. The endowment budgets have been so relatively small that that was never the case. That's never been the case. But yes, the diversity is good because if you have a nice mix, a, a big panoply of different types of funders, local public, statewide public, federal public, as well as on those same levels, the private, you have a fair chance that this wonderful diverse panoply that makes up our republic gets served best, that really in the end, fewer are forgotten, more are included. And I think that ought to be the goal of any diverse and democratic society such as our own. Let's broaden out a bit, you know, beyond the back and forth of, say, the last week. Other countries around the world consider the preservation and continuation of their national cultures, if you will, to be of, of great central import. Many Western democracies in particular have the equivalent of cabinet agencies devoted to culture. You have a particularly interesting professional history. Um, you, are, you are and were a historian of Dutch Golden Age art. You were a research director at a premier East Coast institution at the Clark as, a, as an associate director. You were the director of an elite school of art history, the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU, and, and I could keep going. Do you have a take on why Americans, especially the American right, are so ambivalent about preserving and enabling American culture, especially in comparison to, to other Western nations? It is a great puzzle, especially for someone who came from the Netherlands, which has had extremely good arts and culture funding, and still does today, even though that too has declined. To other countries, and I travel a lot, as you know, to other countries, it is utterly baffling that the United States government doesn't seem to recognize the huge symbolic value a, a cultural policy can signal, however large or small you make it. Indeed, having these endowments, having the Smithsonian, having the National Gallery of Art is a huge signifier to other nations 
about what it means to be a civilized nation. Let's let's call it what it is, and that cares about representing and supporting the full diversity of its nation and its cultural outputs, its cultural productions, on some federal level. Now, why does the right hate this so much? I don't think that the right hates art, particularly, or even culture. After all, I bet that all those Republican senators and congressmen enjoy sometimes taking their constituents to some of the magnificent exhibitions and museums that they can see right there down their, down the mall from their offices in all our great free national museums. This is a great value that we have. I'm sure they like going to the Kennedy Center and all those performances. This, this, this big fight is really about the size of government. And also, of course, the irony is that it's just such a tiny nano piece of the total national budget. But at a time that the question of discretionary spending, congressional discretionary spending, is at issue altogether, and there are proposals for large increases in certain kinds of mandatory spending, inevitably the pie shrinks. And when that pie shrinks, it is so easy to pick on something that some particular constituencies don't like because there's a perception, perhaps, that the art, there are a number of perceptions and misperceptions, but one of them, to be sure, is that the art is someone, that art is something for the elite, that the humanities are something for the elite. This seems to me an enormous misunderstanding, and it seems to me a politically directed misunderstanding, because if you look at what the NEA, the NEH, and IMLS actually do and fund, so much of it is precisely about giving access to all communities rather than only the very wealthy patrons of the arts who in the end spend more money on their own collections, uh, who have access to opera houses, who have access to cultural travel and so forth. So in a way, I think that the, the often cited sort of sense that art is a luxury, that it is for elites, it really can be turned on its head. And you could really say there's a great equity mission in what the NEA and NEH do. And even when we get to the level of the humanities and what the endowments do for the humanities regarding, say, chronicling and making accessible the history of the nation, that's never just the history of, of Manhattan or, or, you know, the Haight-Ashbury. It's, it's the history of, of the hills of Kentucky and the gold mining districts of California. Uh, yeah, it is a strange, um, the elitist argument is a strange one and seems mostly oriented toward present politics rather than institutional function. You know, for a generation now, Republican lawmakers, and now for the first time, a Republican president has tried to eliminate all of the federal government's arts and humanities grant-giving programs. And I, I can't help but notice that in the midst of this, the National Gallery of Art, which receives more or less the same federal appropriation as the NEA or the NEH, has not been targeted by conservatives. So I'm familiar with, and I think our listeners are familiar with, the 1937 agreement by which Andrew Mellon gave his collection and the building to house it, and ultimately the buildings to house it, to the nation in return for a, a congressional pledge to maintain that collection and those buildings. But as we've you know seen before, Congress and especially the executive branch haven't always necessarily felt bound to uphold previous generations' agreements. So first... Why do you think the National Gallery gets by without being threatened in the same way the endowments are? And secondly, is there something from the National Gallery's safety, if you will, 
that the endowments and IMLS and CPB can learn from? The National Gallery of Art, as you stated, was created not just by an agreement, but by really a congressional act, which I'm sure you've read. And it has very strong provisions for the maintenance of this gift to the nation, contractual obligations that the United States government took on that are maybe a little bit different from the establishment of the NEA and the NEH, those particular, that particular act. And you can really see when you read that act carefully, you can see Andrew W. Mellon's extreme familiarity with the government. He had been secretary of the treasury under three different presidents in the 1920s. And when he made his offer to Roosevelt, a Democrat rather than a Republican as he had been, he really was very savvy about how he crafted that language. I think there is a real difference there, whether you can re rewrite the, the, the NEA and NEH acts, I think is very unlikely in this, in this circumstance. But it does seem very important to preserve the architecture, even if funding at the moment may be under pressure. Uh, although I would say I also would like to preserve the, the funding for the NEA and NEH, and I would like to double it. The situation of the, the National Gallery of Art is probably therefore somewhat similar to an organization with which it's closely affiliated, but not officially a part of, which is the Smithsonian Institution that covers all those wonderful museums that people simply love, not just visitors to Washington from other countries. It's really American citizens and residents who love the National Air and Space Museum, who love the Natural History Museum, who love the Hirshhorn, who love all these free institutions that they can go to that represent to them on their national mall the fact that the nation actually does value culture and has done so by very early on accepting the gift that created the Smithsonian. So I think those, those institutions sort of sp uh, stand apart a little. Smithsonian, of course, also has a number of research facilities in places as disparate as Panama and the Antarctic. So it's, it's particularly sprawling. We'll have, on, on manpodcast.com, we will cut and paste the paragraph from the 1937 Joint Resolution of Congress that established the National Gallery Art and that authorized both, both it and appropriations um, in the decades thereafter so that listeners can see how specific that, that, that legislation is. It's one paragraph. It's maybe 150 words, if that. You mentioned you'd like to see the endowments doubled. I think we all would. But... You know, these attacks on the endowments and CPB and, and probably IMLS too have become repeated and routine whenever there's a change of power on Capitol Hill and conservatives uh, regain it. To date, conservatives have not successfully killed the programs, but they've certainly limited program growth and prevented the endowments for having, from having or enabling really big new ideas. So, for example, in today's dollars, the endowments are funded at almost exactly half the level they were funded a generation ago in 1994. So given this kind of long period of attacks on the endowments, should arts backers be think tanking or considering alternatives to them? I think it's very important in the next few months to keep our eye on the ball, which is the ball of preserving the architecture of the NEA and the NEH and maintaining the funding. And so, although there will always be opportunities to discuss further private-public partnerships, I am myself a big believer in them. I think right now we really need to focus on uh, making sure that these entities don't go away. Why do I say that? 
I think the NEA and NEH are, as I've already said, of huge symbolic value in that they show that America has a values proposition about these particular disciplines as really important to American life, our society's life, that we value the support of, of particular ideas and values that we think of as quintessentially American after all. The idea that the imagination is critical to the good life, the good American life for everybody, that creative capacities need to be sustained, that the moral imagination is important and the economic imagination. The arts and culture, I'm speaking to the converted, I'm sure, but they're very important for innovation. Artists have always been technologically interested. They've always seen and kind of run to the potential for new media. Uh, it's sometimes forgotten because we think all think mobiles, for example, are so common. Alexander Calder invited in, or inve invented the, the mobile. That was a that was an artistic act that has done wonders for babies around the world and their families ever since. Corey Archangel, one of our up-and-coming artists, already quite established now out of Brooklyn, thinks hard about what the internet is all about what gaming culture is about, what these kind of innovative technologies do for us, for better, for worse, or in a sort of neutral way. I think you wouldn't want to lose those capacities. So I am a big believer in continuing to make the case while we have these endowments. Yeah, I agree with that. But what, I mean, and, and, and certainly in the short term, all hands on deck, but barring something mostly unforeseen, maybe not entirely unforeseen, that there will be four years of Trump administration. Is there a point at which progressives and arts advocates could or should begin to think about how to create a federal apparatus by which the government can do more than it's currently doing financially and programmatically? I think that is a question worth asking, even at this moment, because it could become part of the argument that we're all in this together. And after all, we have the very successful example of art place, which is also another structure to that is imagined to be there forever. It is sort of on the halfway through of a 10-year uh, slow wind-down trajectory. So I think we can create these kind of glide paths for temporary interventions. You could be quite creative. At the moment, for example, since uh, technology and innovation are on everyone's agenda, on everyone's radar when it comes to restoring the American economic compact, where after all these manufacturing jobs have left and certain kinds of retraining are necessary, I think we could all double down together, foundations, businesses and federal agencies and state organizations as well, thinking about how arts funding, humanities funding can stimulate uh, innovation when it comes to thinking about retraining people, when it, when it comes to thinking about how the schools where so much of this education is sort of drained out can be supported to help young students see the potential of working in the design fields, mobilizing the ability of using technologies like gaming for healthcare delivery systems and so forth. I think there's a lot of sort of challenge funding we could put out there together. Marriott Westermann, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.